Colossians, chapter 2. Working our way through this awesome book. We get to the passage where Paul begins to get to the point, the main point for which he wrote the entire epistle to these Colossian believers and Laodiceans as well. And we're going to basically look at verses 1 to 6, focusing on verses 1 to 5. I'll touch upon verse 6 this time, but we'll begin with verse 6 next time. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of God to you this morning. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing, there it is again, with thankfulness. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Just thought of something this very morning. I can't believe I missed it. When I was young in the Lord, I never missed it. And this is a big one for me, a big milestone. This past September makes 30 years of me walking with Jesus. 30 years ago, this past September, the Lord Jesus saved this scrawny neck, rebellious teenager from the Jersey Shore and brought him into his family by grace. I think that math is right. I hope so. But that's to say, three, that's three decades by the grace of God. Man, I'm getting old. Well, I've been in reform circles. That's Presbyterian circles. That's kind of, that's the, the denomination we belong to in this church. I've been in, in that, those circles for the whole time, basically, since I started. And I want to tell you something. Just as individuals, just as our greatest strength can sometimes be our greatest downfall, our greatest weakness, well, the same thing is true of churches or denominations. Sometimes the very thing that's their strength, you know, that's the one area where you can say, wow, that group really has a gift in that area that can also turn around and be your biggest weakness and the biggest danger. And I say that because, let me put it to you this way. The circles that I've been in, thank God they have been very serious about theology. In other words, they want to make sure that what they believe is what the Bible teaches. 
So they study the Bible hard and they make sure they understand the grace of God and that we're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone. You get the idea. And that's an awesome thing. But unfortunately, that kind of an environment, an environment where we're really working, making sure our theology is pure, that attracts some kinds of people that are nitpicky about theology. You with me? That are cantankerous in spirit. That are overly critical. You know, they're the kind of people that strain out the gnat and do what? Swallow the camel. And I always thought Jesus is what have said that. I always thought that is the funniest thing. You see like this hoof coming out of this guy's mouth. All the while, he's trying to make sure he doesn't get this little tiny gnat in his drink. Now, I say this because, you know, I myself, I've share, I have my share of battle scars from fighting off such people who are what I would call non-caped crusaders, who feel it's their God-given duty to eradicate all and every view that's opposed to them, even if it's the smallest, minor, most non-important thing. I've seen it. I've been, unfortunately, the victim of them. And I'm sure when I was real young, I was the victimizer. I was immature in my faith, and I went around swinging the sword. Whoa, people were getting cut. People were like, whoa, whoa, learn how to use that thing a little bit. I know that was the case. But there is the opposite extreme, and it's equally dangerous. And the opposite extreme is where, and, and it can be equally devastating and sometimes unfortunately worse and that's this naive posture or maybe this gullibility that says anything goes when it comes to teaching in the church let's not talk about doctrine doctrine divides love unites but unfortunately what they mean by that is any horrible bad stuff that anybody wants to pass on in the name of christian they swallow whole listen if, you're, if I'm coming over for dinner, I'm sure hoping you're watching what's going in the meal. You with me? I'm sure hoping you ain't spreading a little bit of, uh, of this chemical and a little bit of this nasty stuff and a little bit of this disease. I'd be a little upset. No, we don't want to go from the one extreme to the other extreme. Because what happens is those folks who, are, who open them, who believe anything goes as it were they open themselves up to false teachers and very charismatic individuals who who look slick who sound smooth but who will take you down the primrose path to destruction not to christ but away from christ the bible condemns both a cantankerous overly critical spirit as well as an undiscerning uncritical one that's what i'm trying to say I love when I could put it in one line. My pastor Craig used to always love this to say this and remind, remind me of this. And to this day, 30 years later, I'll never forget it. He says this. He says, belief has consequences. In other words, what you believe will have consequences in your life. As those who have become disciples of Christ, children of God through faith in Christ, we must test all teaching by the light and the love of the gospel that we've received. Listen, this is important. Strenuously rejecting any teaching, no matter how well it's packaged or presented, that takes away from or adds to the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Because you know why? It's through that gospel, it's through that Jesus who's before all things, who's preeminent, that you have justification. That means that you're made right with God, acceptable to him. It's through that Jesus that you're sanctified. You're made more and more like him, and you grow in grace and knowledge. And it's through that Jesus that you will make it safe, safely home to heaven, and it's only through him. There's no other way. And so for anyone who would come in there and try to jeopardize that, the Apostle Paul will have none of it. I, as your pastor, will have none of it. And believe me, throughout my life, I've been called all kinds of things because the truth was at stake. And I had to stand up and say, excuse me, the emperor has no clothes here. Why are you buying that bag of goods? I remember one time, a young man walking through the halls of the college I went to, and this woman looked at me with contempt. She goes, Santo Garofolo. And I kind of looked up. She goes, guardian of the truth. And she meant it like with disdain. And at first it cut me to the heart. Like, why did she say that? And then I learned, I hope Jesus says that about me. I hope I make it to my grave as the guardian of the truth. Because it's the truth that saves you. It's the truth that sanctifies you. And it's this truth that will bring you to glory and that's what Paul's epistle to the Colossians is all about guarding ourselves against unbiblical teaching in the negative sense and in the positive sense growing more and more in the true gospel of Jesus so that we can be filled more and more with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in him alone and the way we do that Paul's going to tell us is we continue the way we started. How did we start? We received Jesus as Lord. You continue to live in Jesus as Lord. Isn't that interesting? You receive Jesus as Lord. He doesn't say you received Jesus as Savior, although you did. His emphasis is you received him as Lord. In other words, right from the get-go, he calls the shots. You submitted to him. You said, Lord, I am yours. You are God. I am not. Show me how to live this life and lead me. So what we're going to see, this is probably a mouthful, but this is what we're going to see in the text. Here's the theme. Paul expresses his pastoral struggles for the saints to be encouraged, united, and filled with the knowledge of Christ so they will not be deceived by fine-sounding arguments that contradict the gospel they receive. I'll tell you, I've been working hard to try to distill these verses. But three simple things. If you didn't get, catch all that, I'll mention it later again. Just three simple things, which I know you can all relate to, because I can too. Three things. The first thing is Paul's pastoral struggles. Look at verse 1. We're going to see Paul's pastoral struggles. Secondly, we'll see the purpose for his struggles. And then last of all, we're going to see the punchline of his message. So let's look at the first one, Paul's pastoral struggles. Look at verse 1. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Now, I want to mention this quickly. This verse picks up from the last two verses that preceded this text where Paul already basically said, I'll summarize it for you, that his apostolic gospel ministry in general involved proclaiming Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, 
in order to present everyone mature in Christ. What a great description of gospel ministry, especially apostolic. And then he said, he labored at this, struggling with all of Christ's energy, which so powerfully worked in him. I bring this up because our text connects to that. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he moves from the general idea of his apostolic ministry in general to the specific. Now he's going to say this. He's going to apply it specifically to the believers of Colossae and Laodicea and those who have never met him personally. And he says this. Here's, here's what I want you to see. He says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you too, personally. In other words, it's one thing to say I struggle for all the churches. It's another thing to say New City Fellowship, you're on my list. Even though I haven't had a chance to visit you, I struggle with all the strength of Jesus for you. I care about you. You're on my radar. I haven't forgotten about you because I'm in chains now and I can't make it to you. I want you to still know I'm struggling with all of God's mighty strength for you. I'm wrestling. The word translated in an English version for struggle here in 2.1 uh, in, in and also in 129, comes from the original Greek word, listen, I love this Greek word, agoninzo. Isn't that a cool word? Agoninzo. And it means to agonize. And there's a number of places in the Bible that use this word, of course. One of them is when it says um, to make great effort, strive to enter uh, the, the straight and narrow gate. And the word there, again, is agoninzo. So my, my friend and I, um, Barry Henning's son, Barry Henning's the senior pastor of New City at, at St. Louis. Um, Aaron is his son. We've been good friends going back to when I was at college. We'd always see each other. When we see each other, we say this, agoninzo. And he says, agoninzo. And that means, you know, struggle, wrestle, fight. And here Paul says this. He's basically saying, I want you to know how much I'm agonizing for you. Not only in his preaching ministry and his exhorting ministry and in his epistle writing ministry, but here by inference, he's basically saying in prayer. In prayer, I get on my knees and I wrestle for you. I'm wrestling for your souls. Curtis Vaughn puts it this way, very simply. The powers that wrestled with Paul for the ruin of his work were real and resolute. He, therefore, had to meet them foot to foot, force to force in Christ. What's that saying? That's saying the devil wanted Paul. You get me? The devil was after Paul constantly because Paul was the man. He was the apostle to the Gentiles and he went around spreading the gospel no matter what anybody did to him he was beat he was stoned and left for dead he was shipwrecked he had the, the, the 40 lashes minus one again and again and again and the man didn't stop he was like the energizer bunny look the devil had him locked up in prison in Rome tied to a guard and it didn't stop him from spreading the gospel Paul wanted to make it abundantly clear that just because he didn't personally bring the gospel to them and he hadn't had the opportunity to meet them in the flesh, that he still had his eye on them and they were still very much an extension of his gospel ministry as the apostle of the Gentiles. They were not outside of his pastoral struggle and concern. Listen, 
So you know this. God doesn't have grandchildren. Know what that means? Everybody has to repent and believe for themselves. You can't rely on the faith of your parents. Right? But here's a neat thing. Gospel ministers do. What do I mean by that? I mean you, by the grace of God, lead someone to Christ, and then they go off and they preach the gospel somewhere else, and guess what happens? Someone gets saved. That person's your great spiritual grandchild. And what Paul, Paul's relationship to the Colossians was like that. Paul's basically saying, we sent Epaphras. He brought the gospel to you. You know him personally. You don't know me personally right now, but I want you to know I know all about you. I heard all about you from Epaphras, and I'm so proud of him and so thankful to God for you and for your faith. Now listen, I had a taste of this. Um, I am not a big go to general assembly every year kind of guy. That's our big Presbyterian meeting. We have once a year, all the, all the pastors and elders go, and it's usually south of the Mason-Dixon line, way down there. And I don't feel like traveling to Alabama, Tennessee, Texas. You know, I mean, I have enough traveling. I have gone a few times. And one time I went when I was a pastor at Dwaynesburg Reformed Presbyterian Church. And there was a man, I, I, read the, I remember reading this great book on how the, the, the PCA started, that's our denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, how it began in the 70s, and, and um, there was a great man who wrote a book, his name was Kennedy Smart, that was his name. Godly man, gracious man, dripping with wisdom and insight. And as it were, one of his distant relatives actually came, went to Dwaynesburg. And so when, um, when I went to General Assembly, I actually saw him, and I walked up, and I said, uh, Pastor Smart, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I was a little ner- I'm Pastor Santo, and I'm so happy to, and he goes, he just looks at me, listen, it's so cool, he looks at me, he goes, I know who you are. And I was like, whoo. He goes, um, and I'm, pr- I'm so thankful for what you're doing there in Dwaynesburg, and I know that you're, you're, you're trying to, um, get them to do more outreach and show, share the love of Christ with the community. And, and I was like, well, you know, it's only a start. And he goes, but at least you're doing something. And I remember just walking away from that feeling like, wow, here's one of the founders of our denomination, one of the big wigs. And, and he, you know, cares enough to know about this little country church of under 100 people in upstate New York and to know my name. And oh, and by the way, to say I'm praying for you. That was a great encouragement to me. I'll tell you that. Just to know that, I felt like I'm not alone. Because sometimes you do feel alone. You feel like you're in your own little corner of the world and nobody's listening. Or nobody cares. And Paul wanted the Colossians to know, no, I do care. I'm intensely concerned about you and that you stay true to the gospel and grow in Christ. And, And he wanted them to feel encouraged by the fact that he was struggling for them to be secure in Christ, be rooted in Christ, and to know Christ. That's the first thing, Paul and his struggles. But second thing, we got to see this, because this is where it really catches, gets going. The purpose for his struggles. But why is Paul struggling? Look at verse 2 for them. My purpose of the struggling he just mentioned, the agonizo for them. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of Christ, mystery of God, excuse me, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Listen, Paul's purpose was, first of all, that they would be encouraged in heart. The Greek word translated, translated encouraged is parakaleo. It carries the idea of coming alongside of, of comforting, of strengthening. But now here's the question. What does it mean to be encouraged in heart? And I actually learned a little bit this week. One commentator, Douglas Moo, makes an important point when he points out that in our culture, when we think, when we use the word heart, we usually mean what? We mean our emotions. That's why we have a little red thing that we design, you know, these, oh, it's like heart. It's our emotions only. But when the Bible refers to the heart, it's referring to the center of the personality, which includes your will, your volition, it includes your mind, your thinking, and it includes your feeling, your emotions. So it's the whole center of your being. Mind, will, and emotions. And so that's we have to understand what, what Paul's actually praying for here. Douglas Moo puts it this way. To have hearts encouraged is a way of referring to an encouragement that touches the deepest part of our being and affects every aspect of our persons. Isn't that a good way of putting it? At the very core of your being is what Paul is saying. He wants you to be encouraged. He wants God to strengthen you. To, parakaleo means to come alongside. Listen, I remember I had an examination. And I was kind of on trial. And I have a little difference uh, with the Westminster Confession is what our denomination holds to. And when you go to be ordained or you go to be received in a different presbytery, different region, new church, they have to examine you to see if your theology is good, which is a good thing. We talked about that earlier. But we, when you have a little scruple, you have to say what it is, and they will determine whether it's a serious thing, like, whoa, this guy is like way off, or if it's something, okay, we can agree to disagree on. And when I gave my scruple, my one issue that I had with the confession, some guys came after me like we mentioned uh, earlier. And one person stood up and said, I've never taught what, what he's talking about. Has anybody here ever taught that way? And of course, that's where my heart sinks because most I've been in other Presbyterians where people who believe like I do just stay quiet because they don't want to get in trouble. So I thought, oh man, now here we go. Let's see who my friends are. And I literally was almost in tears because my one brother who's known me for many years stood up and goes, I do. I teach that. And then that emboldened the next guy to go, I do too. <laughs> and then my pastor growing up said, and the hands just started going. And I remember literally I was almost filled with tears. What did they do for me? They came alongside me. You with me? And that's just an illustration of what Paul is saying in a much more important arena of, of your very life. He's saying, I pray that you would be encouraged, that you would, God would come alongside, as it were, in your, in your very being to strengthen you in, in, in the Lord, in grace, in the gospel. And he adds this. There's a purpose, that you might be united in love. And literally, it means knit together in love. Isn't that a cool idea of the church being knit together, right? Like a fabric where we're all a piece of it, 
and we're all knit together closely. Paul's deep desire is that they would stand united, that there would, they would form a united front in love, not letting anyone or anything break their ranks. Listen, unity in Christ, unity in the church, it is, it's underrated. We take it too lightly. It's one of the most important things for the church, is for us to stick together in the truth and in love. And that's why it's important no matter what culture you're from, no matter what color you are, no matter what, what gender, no matter any of that, in the church we're one in Christ Jesus. And we need to have a united front to the world and say, listen, Jesus is the way. We might prefer to eat different things in this church. We might listen to different music. We have different preferences. But when it comes to our walk with Christ, we are one. You will not separate us. You cannot. The world needs to see that. An old man on the point of death summoned his sons together around him to give them some parting advice. I love this story. He ordered someone to, to bring in a bundle of sticks. And he said to his oldest son, break it. And the oldest son, oh, this might, <clears throat> couldn't break it. So he gave it to the next son, next brother. That one, <clears throat> couldn't break it. All the way around, all his boys. And then he said, okay, I want you to separate the sticks, and each of you take a stick. Now break it. Each one very easily went, <coughs> they broke the individual sticks. And then the father said this, you see the meaning, sons. Unity gives strength. When we are together, we cannot be broken. When we are separate, we are in trouble. No man is an island. And that is especially true in the church. We are the body of Christ. And we need one another. What is this unity based on? And that's what he goes on to say. He says this. I pray, or my desire for you, is that you would be encouraged in heart, knit together in love. Listen, so that, this is what Paul continues to write, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding, and or you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now notice, how do you get this full knowledge, this full wisdom in Christ? You know what's interesting? The only way each of us individually can come to that knowledge is together. No one of us is complete, can have that completeness without each other. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, uh, which is a parallel book. He says, um, so that together with all the saints you might know the heights and the depths and the width of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, together with all the saints, not individually alone. And what's beautiful here, this is really the high water mark of Christology here about who Jesus is in this epistle when he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, Paul's been talking about knowledge. He's been talking about wisdom. He's been talking about fullness. This whole epistle so far. Why? Very unique to the other letters he's written. I'll tell you why. Because there were these shysters. There were these false teachers that were offering some kind of fullness, some kind of completeness, some kind of extra something 
outside of Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Any wisdom you want, real spiritual wisdom, any true spiritual knowledge, it's all found in Christ alone. And the, the beauty of that is you have him. You already have it. Paul is saying, seek him together. Walk closer with him. Go further up and further in with Jesus by faith. And listen, it's the truth that is in Christ Jesus that unites us and keeps us together. We could debate all kinds of secondary issues. But the one thing we could say that the gospel, that God became man, that Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins, that he, rose again, he was buried, that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he ascended into heaven, that he's at the right hand of Father. Someday he will come again to judge uh, the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. My brother and sister, we are united in that. You want to know more, you want to grow, you want to be spiritually mature, well then it's all in Jesus. And he's yours by faith. You remember what Jesus said? Seek, and you will find. Right? Ask. Just ask. It'll be given to you. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For he who seeks finds, he who asks receives, and he who knocks, the door will be open. And you know, he says something else in Scripture. I am the door. If Christ is the mystery of God, and if him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that knowledge unites us more and more, you could see how false teaching that offers some secret, special knowledge that only a elite few can have would cause deep divisions in the church and threaten to break the ranks of the thus far unbroken unity of the Colossian Christians. You could see why Paul is concerned. And now, the last thing I want to point out for this morning, Paul comes out finally after this whole huge, everything up to, to this point in Colossians is, has been an introduction. And now Paul gets to the body of his epistle. He gets to the whole point where we say, okay, Paul, we thank you. This, these words are really encouraging, but um, can you tell us why you're bringing all this up now? You ever have a conversation with somebody and they're going on and on and you're kind of thinking, I wonder if this is going to tie into anything. You know? Well, here we're going to see why Paul's been given this great long thing about Jesus being preeminent and all, this, all the wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures. Why? Why have you been saying this? Here's the punchline, and that's the last thing I'm going to point out. Look at verse 4. And then he's going to start rocking in this epistle after this. Look at verse 4. I tell you this. <laughs> it means everything he's been saying in the Colossians so far, but especially our passage. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. <laughs> see, these false teachers, which were like this pre-Gnostic heretics, they had some Jewish ascetic, ascetic leanings, which if you don't know what that stuff means, don't worry, we'll get into it in the next few weeks. But they were trying to turn them away from the truth that's found in Christ Jesus. Through persuasive, smooth-talking arguments that, listen, they were heavy on theatrics. 
and persuasion skills, but absent of substantial truth. In other words, they were all show with no reality. Lucas puts it this way. There's a fresh responsibility laid on Christians to examine all teaching for truthfulness of its content rather than the attractiveness of its packaging. And I'm telling you something right now. We need this message way more today than they needed it back then because we have social media, we have internet, any the most foul, ridiculous, horrible teaching can be passed on with a press of a button. And we all have to put up with the nastiness. Whether it's the cool, hip, postmodern leader who lures folks with his charisma and smooth talk and then feeds them only, only the positive things that Jesus said, but of course ignores all the warnings that our Lord said. You know, that's why we go through the book of Matthew from beginning to end. We want to hear everything Jesus said. We want to hear his warnings about hell. We want to hear his promises about heaven. We want to hear about how we need to put sin to death as well as the grace he gives us to live for him. We want it all. And as preachers, Pete and I and others who bring the word to you, it is our divine responsibility to preach you the whole counsel of God. Whether it's popular, whether it makes you, ooh, wow, he did a ripping sermon. Oh, man, he, he, he could speak or any of that. It's more important to me that I get the truth to you. Yes, in a way. Now, listen. That never gives the preacher an excuse to be as boring as he possibly, you know. I, I think it's, it's borderline sin to go up there and just go like, Mr. Christian, I think that's horrible. We need to use every, all, all the skill within us, all the giftedness that God has blessed us with to, make, to hammer the truth home, amen. But in the end, you better not be giving them a bag of goods. And you better not be real light on truth and real big on flash. It's better to be big on truth and light on flash. Look how many people have shipwrecked their faith because they follow the, the next new thing that came out that promises something that the tired old church can't give you. And I look at those people today. Where are they? Where are they? I'll tell you what, not in a good place. An old Arabian proverb, you won't hear me quoting Arabian proverbs much, but this one's a good one, says this, don't pour away the water you are traveling with because of a mirage. Think about that. You know, people go, you ever see those cartoons? Finally, water! Right? And the person runs in and they go into the dust, you know, it's like, and there was nothing there. Well, what this proverb means is you have this clean, living, beautiful, life-giving water in your hand, and you dump it out for this beautiful mirage that doesn't exist. You with me? And what Paul is saying is don't dump out the beautiful, life-giving, sustaining water of the gospel for these false promises of the false teachers, which are nothing but empty promises that deliver, promise the universe and give you nothing but trouble, sorrow, and pain because they cut you off from the living head from which we all derive our strength, nourishment, and life. Who is Christ? Now here's the cool thing. We're almost finished for this morning, but this is something I, I picked up in the text and I think it's awesome. It's so encouraging to me. 
Paul is overjoyed to hear that they haven't fell for these false teachers and the smooth talk they give so far. Look at verse 5. This is so encouraging. He says, though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Listen, he's delighted because he's saying, you haven't broken ranks yet. <laughs> that is awesome. I heard from Epaphras how you're on the wall, hand to hand, foot to foot, and you have not given an inch to these false teachers. Bravo. Bravo. And you know, it's kind of like parenting. If you're always on your kids about everything they do wrong all the time, you're going to exasperate them, and they're going to give up. We got it, like, like uh, Martin Luther says, you know, you got to give them the rod now and then, but you should be giving them an apple now and then, too. And Paul is, is not saying this disingenuously. He is saying very seriously, brothers and sisters in Christ, amen. I'm so happy to see how firm your, your faith in Christ is. Now, what's interesting, in other epistles, Paul has to address churches where the infection has already started, where they started to fall for these false teachings and false teachers, and, and the, the disease already started to set in, and then he had to do damage control, right? But I like this. Uh, Walter Wink says this. This epistle is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already infected. <laughs> Isn't that cool? It's a vaccination. You know, you get some people get flu shots. I don't want to get in that debate. But in this case, this is a good flu shot. This doesn't have any side effects. This is a good vaccination. So refreshing. And that's why Paul has spent so much time connecting with them, expressing his apostolic and pastoral care and concern, revealing to them how they are so dear to him as an extension of his apostolic ministry of the gospel, given to him by the Lord Jesus himself, whom he proclaims. You know, my wife said something to me the other day that literally encouraged my heart so much and took me by surprise. Uh, we always tease each other back and forth. You know, when we say, I love you, she'll always ask me, why? Why do you love me? And then I'm always like, because, you know, she wants to hear what she wants. I'm like, oh, boy, you know, I'm on trial. She always does it to me, and we always have fun back and forth. Well, this time, I thought, you know what? After 20, almost 28 years, I'm going to switch it. She said, I love you. I, I said, why? And then I thought, hey, let's watch her squirm a little bit. And she said, because I know you love me, and you have my best interests at heart. And uh, she said, and I know you want me to be walking close with Jesus and I just can't tell you how how deeply that touched me how it blessed me um, I was literally like I am now speechless but that is absolutely Paul's desire for these Colossian believers he wants them to know don't listen to these people who really only want to win you they only want to take you captive so they can use you I genuinely want your best interest. If you don't believe me, come see my raw ankles that are in shackles. Come see my back that looks like hamburger meat. That's what Paul's saying. So he wants them to be, continue the same way they began. Look at verse 6. This is what we're going to end with and what we'll start with next time. So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Listen, we often talk, rightly so, at New City Fellowships about not just talking about it, but being about it. Well, making sure we're not deceived by smooth-talking teachers whose teaching leads us away from Christ, not deeper into him, is a part of being about it and not just talking about it. It's a great part of leadership. Being about it means protecting you from false teaching and from lies and from stuff that is going to do nothing but pollute your life and separate people and bring disunity in marriages, disunity in the church, and all kinds of unnecessary suffering and pain because we follow the sinful way rather than the gospel way. Making sure the message we're preaching is in keeping with the apostolic message of Jesus who is preeminent is being about it. And as long as this church is here, that's what we'll be about. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message that it may not tantalize, it may not excite, but Lord, it fills us with substantial spiritual food that feeds our souls because it points us to the one who gives life who gives us living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and insight, and in whom we can have as much fullness as is possible on this side of glory, and then complete fullness when he comes again. Oh Lord, continue to knit this little church together in love and in unity, in Christ and in him alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.